welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden episode eleven. Wow, double figures now. Yep, double figures. Um, well, we were double figures last week. But... Double figures plus one. Yep. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is episode eleven, the Vikings attack because <gasps> we couldn't think of anything that was also dramatic but also accurate. Th- th- that is what what we always aim for: drama and accuracy. Yeah. What what are they attacking? What are we going to talk about? Well, we'll talk about the famous arrival at Lindisfarne to really mm-hmm. start this Viking era, even mm-hmm. though there are probably no Swedes involved. But well. it is really exciting because we actually have actual dates with actual events rather than just in 1,000 <laughs> years a bloke might have gone and met this woman and traded her something. Things are becoming a lot more tangible. I mean, to be fair, they were tangible way back when, when you still have archaeological sort of remains but it's now very tangible yeah and that's really cool and then i think you want to talk about daily life in rural sweden yeah and some of the few things that swedes would have been getting up to at the time yeah it's it's all very exciting stuff and we're talking about the general period sort of 790 to 850 ce ish for today but just for you guys to place yourself, where where are we in time? That's roughly where we are, beginning of the 800s. Cool. But before we get into that timeline, let's start with the Swedish phrase. Yeah. Um, this is one I hadn't heard of before, but it's called Köpa grisen i säcken. Yeah. And that literally means buy the pig in the bag. That's the gris is pig, säcken, the bag. So you buy the pig in the bag. Um, and why would you buy a pig in a bag? Well, I've never bought a pig in my life. But it actually, so the meaning is that you take a chance on something. Or you have faith in something that you don't know everything about. So if you buy a pig that's in a bag, you kind of have to have faith that the pig is a good pig because you haven't seen the pig. So you're taking a chance on the pig that's in the bag. So it might, and it might not even be a pig. How would you use it in a like an English sentence? So you could use it in the sense that, like, I'm going to see this movie, but I haven't watched the trailer and I have no idea what it's about. I'll just have to show up a any second. I've bought the tickets already, uh, and I have to hope that it's good. Okay, cool. That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. It's usable, practical. But luckily, this episode isn't going to be buying a pig in a bag because we know it's going to be exciting because we kicked off the Viking Age last time. And in the previous episode, we talked a bit about who the Vikings were, what time period we're talking about in general for the whole Viking period. And we busted a couple of myths about yeah. them, too. Now, we thought we'd divide today's episode into two not very equal parts, but still parts nonetheless. One part will start with the events in the early Viking Age, which really founded the era, like the famous raid at Lindisfarne and those that followed, with one part about everyday life for your average Swede or Viking in rural Sweden. Yeah. And depending on how we go, this might be a structure that we continue to use for the next few episodes to first have a bit about individual chronological events as we go, and then have a bit that's more about a general theme or aspect of life during the period. We'll we'll see how it goes. 
Yeah, I know we're going to do that for the next episode, definitely, because <gasps> I'm so excited about the next episode. It's I'm really, really excited, but we've got to do this one first, well, which I'm also very excited about. Yeah. Why don't you start us off with a pivotal event in the early Viking period? So this is the Lindisfarne attack or raid or massacre or <laughs> whatever terrible adjective you'd like to call this event. It's usually the event that's often considered to really start the Viking Age, despite there being other attacks in the period that were equally as gruesome or groundbreaking, and some even a few years before this. But the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the mm-hmm. sort of the newspaper of the Anglo-Saxons <laughs> in England and Britain at the time, is a big source about this, and it's a good information source for England in general. So we're going to reference it a fair bit. And unfortunately, a lot of what we are going to be talking about isn't going to be involving Swedes for this first bit, because it seems to be a lot of Norwegians and Danes doing this sort of raiding in this first section of this episode. But it's definitely important to understand the context, what the general period was going through, and what Vikings in general will be getting up to as a rule of thumb. Yeah. I think the fact that Lindisfarne is often used as the starting point, I mean, it's a bit arbitrary. You never have exact dates for these things, and it's a bit Anglo-centric. But we've got to start somewhere, and Lindisfarne is a really interesting event. So why not? Uh, The Vikings arrived to this monastery at Lindisfarne in 793. This is a monastery on an island called Holy Island, very aptly named for somewhere that has a monastery. It's off the northeast coast of England, very close, in fact, to the English-Scottish border. Absolutely. And I've been there probably about 15 or so years ago now, but it's very, very cool. So it's just off the coast. It's, you can walk there in about 10 minutes or so. And it's one of these places where the tide comes in obviously twice a day, and when the tide goes out, you can walk to it, but when the tide comes in, they have these emergency towers along the road going out to them. So if you get stuck, you have to run up the tower and wait for the tide to go out. Interesting. Yeah, it's quite cool, isn't it? We never got stuck. That's good. Well planned. And I bet those towers weren't there when the Vikings arrived. Probably not. Yeah, sounds like a lovely place, but very sad for the monks who were living there at the time when the Vikings arrived. Definitely. (laughs) The monastery uh, of Lindisfarne was founded in the 630s by an Irish monk called St. Aidan. He had been asked to go there to set up a monastery, and he left the island of Iona off the west coast of Scotland to come to England He did so on request of the King of Northumbria at the time, King Oswald. Northumbria being a region of England before England was unified into one big kingdom. So it's sort of local-ish politics. This little king is asking him to come and set up a monastery for him. Nice. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that Chris mentioned as a good source, it says, and I quote, In this year, dire portents appeared over Northumbria and sorely frightened the people. They consisted of immense whirlwinds and flashes of lightning, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. On the 8th of June, the ravages of heathen men miserably destroyed God's church on Lindisfarne with plunder and slaughter. Pretty hysterical from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Yeah, that is, wow, fiery dragons and then this 
ravages of heathen men when the Vikings arrived. Obviously, I don't necessarily judge the accuracy quite well with the dragons, but also there was a little thing on researching this. Apparently, it got the month wrong. Originally, it said January, and they all think that that's not going to be the case because it would have been very difficult for the Vikings yeah. to sail in January. So, touch of salt when you uh, listen to that quote, but regardless, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad, but it's also well-written prose to describe uh, an event. Yeah. And so news of this raid quickly spread around the crystal world, as you would expect for such a dramatic telling of the events. Mm -hmm. And it even got all the way to France, where we have records of it disturbing a guy called Alcuin, (laughs) who was a Northumbrian scholar living far away in the Frankish kingdom at the time. Maybe he was on an exchange program (laughs) or something, um, because he was actually a tutor to the children of the renowned king Charlemagne. And he was absolutely horrified by this atrocity at this point its scale was really unprecedented and he wrote to Higbald these excellent names um, who was Bishop of Lindisfarne and said it was a place more sacred than any in Britain the church of St Cuthbert is splattered with the blood of the priests of God stripped of all its furnishings exposed to the plundering of the pagans so that does sound pretty rubbish to me in terms of an experience to live through that sounds awful but it also seems to signify that these violent raiding vikings that we've heard so much of they have now truly arrived on the international scene they really had arrived and there was actually a raid in scotland the first scottish raid a year later so poor scotland yeah poor scotland I consider Scotland my adopted uh, homeland, lived up there, and I'm I'm very fond of it. So I hate to hear that they were raiding and being awful up there. Uh, Their raids really did begin with a bit of a bang, but actually, for the first 40 or 50 years... They were, in general, more of a nuisance. A lot of raiders started to go north and around the top of Scotland, and there wasn't really like a major raid to follow up Lindisfarne. Yeah, the sequels tend to not be as fun, apart from Star Wars and Terminator (laughs) and other good sequels. Yeah, but, but there are also lots of bad sequels, and the sequels to Lindisfarne tended to have been not as dramatic. As we go through the period we're looking at today, there was growing political instability in Francia. That's kind of roughly what's France today. Things started to like open up for the Vikings. They, they saw opportunities. Uh, Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne, died in 840, and there was a succession crisis between his three sons and a nephew. And, I mean... As we all know in history, that never ends well. You should never split your kingdom between multiple sons. Uh, it's Constantine the Great and loads yeah. of Henry II in England. It's just never a good idea. Succession crisis, classic, classic mistake. So there was a lot of scope for the Danish to simply you know, march south or for the Norwegians to sail south. England was also ripe for the taking, and so was Scotland. So the Vikings were ready to go, but they also had opportunity where they arrived. Yeah, and I think when you're always... This is another 
classic historical thing is when you're you're dealing with your own problems and then someone comes knocking on the door saying, hello, we're here to take your stuff <laughs> and you're not really prepared. So the Danes really do capitalise on this general weakness of the time and start to ramp things up a bit uh, with the help of the Norwegians mm-hmm. too. And there's presumably a few Swedes involved at this time, but there's no sort of one Swedish leader who's rallying people to go on these big journeys. But we can assume that some of the Danish Vikings came from areas that are Sweden today, perhaps similarly with with the Norwegians. So we're not completely out of our territory as a Swedish history podcast here. No, definitely not. Uh, There are a few good dates for other Viking events, Uh, just to briefly mention, that also happened around this time, the early 800s. Norwegian Vikings got to the Scottish islands and the Hebrides and sailed all the way around and reached the island of Ireland. And in fact, they were the ones that founded Dublin in 836. Nice. Yeah, I mean, Dublin, obviously the capital of modern-day Republic of Ireland, founded by Norwegian Vikings. And the Danes, they got into Hamburg in Germany, which was part of Charlemagne's old empire. They got in in 845, and they destroyed it, and we'll cover this much more in the next episode. Yeah, one of the big characters in early Swedish history is from there. The next event's quite a big deal because it was when the first fleet overwinters in England. So yeah. instead of going home for the winter, the Vikings just said, nah, let's just stay. Then we don't have to sail back next year. Which really sort of signifies a greater permanent effort to establish somewhere. Exactly. And that, that was in 850. Um, so they're sticking around after their raiding as well. And just before that, again in 845, a Viking force supposedly led by the legendary Ragnar Lothbrok mm. made raids into France and they were paid £7,000 of silver just to leave Paris alone. Gosh. So that was a tactic that we'll see much more in later Viking periods where the people being attacked would simply just pay them off and it became a bit of a ritual really in england um it was called the dane girl to pay off the danish vikings so please leave us alone yeah so it was pretty bad times really once we reached the sort of the middle of the 830s like this Philip Parker's book, The Northmen's Fury, Mm -hmm. talks about this period of escalating Viking raids, and he highlights this really good quote from a monk called Ermentar of Normoitier, also called Ermentarius Tornensius. And this Ermentar guy is pretty fed up at this point, (laughs) and we'll have a reading from this shortly. He lived with his fellow monks on this abbey on the island of Normoitier, and it's near Mont-de-Nantes on the west coast of France, if you want to find it. And it's a bit like Lindisfarne, actually very much like Lindisfarne, in the sense that the tide comes in and turns it into a proper island, and the causeway is completely flooded by water. And it's actually now, in the Monday, home of the most amazing race that um, I tweeted a video of the other day. It's called the Fouliers de Gois, and it's an international road running race held annually on the Passage de Gois, the causeway between the island and the mainland. And so basically they just wait for the tide to come in and then they run across the water when the water comes up to sort of their knees and they're running this two and a half miles across the water. It's really mad. So uh, check our Twitter account or just uh, search for Fouliers de Gois. Wow, amazing. But anyway, back to the Vikings. 
So the Vikings went after Emmentar too and his abbey, and he actually records the first Viking raid on continental Europe, and that was against his monastery in 799. According to him, from 819, the monks were forced to spend summers on the mainland because the Vikings were just constantly raiding the area. And they were just like, oh, we can't be bothered. Let's, they're going to come this year. Let's just go somewhere else. That's oh. probably quite wise. They didn't want to get their feet wet all the time running across the, <laughs> running across the causeway. True. And sadly, in 836, they had to eventually permanently relocate the abbey inland. And a few years later, the Vikings actually moved into the abbey complex to, to make it their base for a series of raids into France. They just like cuckoo birds came in and took over the place. Do cuckoo birds do that? That is exactly what cuckoo birds do. Ah, there you go. I learned something new. So, yeah, no wonder this Ermentar guy is pretty angry when he's writing this letter, because historians have said that he's therefore perhaps probably not the most balanced source <laughs> because he hates the Vikings. They've kicked him out of his home, probably killed some of his brother monks yeah. and everything. So he really does hate the Vikings. Yeah. But it's a good read, at least. So should we hear it's, what he has to say? Love to hear what he said. It's being read out by our good friend Caroline. The number of ships increases. The endless flood of Vikings never ceases to grow bigger. Everywhere Christ's people are the victims of massacre, burning and plunder. The Vikings overrun all that lies before them, and none can withstand them. Ships voyage up the Seine, and throughout the entire region evil grows strong. Rouen is laid waste, looted and burnt. Paris, Beauvais and Mieux are taken. Melun's stronghold is razed to the ground. Chartres occupied, Evreux and Bayeux looted, and every town invested. Wow, that is brutal. Thank you, Caroline, for reading that out. Yes, thank you so much, Caroline. Caroline has nothing to plug, but she's a superb Maltese journalist, cook, dancer, mm -hmm. and most importantly, a really great friend yeah. uh, who I met when I was living in Malta, and she came over here to London for a bit. So thank you so much for reading out that, Caroline. Grazie Hafna. Inti lahia warta. So back to the quote, you really do get a good sense of this madness spreading across Europe at this time. And at least from the monk's perspective, it really is seen as this way of evil and the devil sending people to attack the people of Christ. So it's really focusing on the pagan nature of the Vikings and their ruthlessness. Yeah, I think uh, that definitely plays a part that the Vikings at this point wouldn't have been Christian. So it gets that religious aspect to it as well. The outsiders, the heathens coming in, very violent and really awful atrocities. Uh, yeah, I think you're lucky if you were one of the people taken prisoner, which they definitely did take prisoner, yeah. which we'll see next week. Yeah. Or maybe you were lucky if you sort of hid in a pile <laughs> of straw and were never found. I think they were probably the luckiest ones. Yeah, I don't think being taken prisoner and made a slave, as we'll see next episode, uh, was that great either. But it should be moved to something a bit more peaceful, calmer and more relaxed. Yes, because we've had a look at a bit of the drama that's going on. But as we mentioned, sadly, a lot of them wouldn't have been Swedes. So 
they're really focusing on the other side of the compass at this point, the Swedes. So they're going out east when all this stuff is happening west of the Viking homelands. So there probably weren't many, if any, Swedes getting involved in these famous raids, but still all good to learn about and get the context. So what would the Swedes have been getting up to in this period when they weren't hell-raising overseas to the west and killing everyone? Yeah, so we'll we'll hear about their own hell-raising and travelling more sort of east, but... The fact of the matter is that most people in this period, you know, they weren't off somewhere making life a misery for monks, but rather they were at home getting on with their daily lives. And so what was everyday life like in the Viking era, and in particular in the early Viking era? Today we're going to focus on the micro-level stuff, so stuff like what their houses looked like and what their diets were like, and Next time, we'll look more at the macro level of everyday life. So stuff like trade and life in towns. Yeah, because life in towns is very different to what the life of the majority of people Mm. in the Viking Age would have been living. And that was because they would have been living on some sort of farm. Yeah. And in this period, farms were often clustered together in small settlements or communities and rarely, rarely grew into these big sort of modern day towns that we come to expect of today. On these farms, they would have grown barley and rye for that lovely bread that Mm -hmm. also loves so much. Mm. And to a smaller extent, wheat. These crops were harvested by placing a sickle on a pole, and which was the way crops were cut in most parts of Europe at the time. So it was very labour-intensive. And the wheat then, for example, would have been ground by hand too. So yeah. it's, you're using a lot of energy, so that you're, you're getting your arms strong yeah. for that occasion when you did want to go and fight. <laughs> for sure. They were, they were thicked, the Vikings. Yeah, they had to be. But they also grew vegetables mm. uh, like cabbages and beans. And it's interesting to note that the potato, which we nowadays often associate with Scandinavian cuisine, wasn't even on the radar as a crop for the Vikings then. So No, not at all. I mean, it'll be several hundred years until we see the introduction of the potato. Relatively recently, actually. So there's no fish and milky potatoes like the Swedes love today. Well, the, the Swedes love, and I think you particularly love, it's one of the Scandinavian dishes that you've really taken to, is milky potatoes. Yeah. For any Swedish listener, what Chris is referring to when he's saying milky potato is a deal stuvad potatis, any stuvning where it's been cooked in milk. But it wasn't just replacements for potatoes that the Viking farmers were getting on and looking after, because they were also looking after livestock. So they had cows and ox and goats and sheep and pigs and everything, really. So they kept horses for transport, too, and they could use them on the fields. Mm. In terms of transport, it was probably more in the sense of horses that pulled wagons as opposed to people riding the horses directly. Yeah, with the cows and the sheep, at least in some areas, these animals were probably herded to an upland area in summer and then taken down to a lowland area in winter. Uh, This is a practice known as fairbodrift. I've actually not found a translation to it in English. If if someone knows, do do let me know because I was looking online for what it's called when you essentially you keep cattle in one place upland in the summer and then take it down to a lowland area in winter. But anyway, this practice of fairbodrift was 
actually going on in Sweden and in Norway until the first decades of the 20th century. So it's like a thousand years. Yeah, that, that this was done. Even though by now the age of hunting and gathering is long gone, Viking era people would still hunt and fish for food, especially in areas where the conditions for farming was less ideal. This type of farming in the Viking era wasn't just subsistence farming. It was also to keep yourself and your family in sort of profit yeah. by trading and partaking in the wider economy rather than just for purely staying alive. Yeah. And the economy was largely a barter economy. So if you had a great tasty pig, you could go and trade that for a new spear to take on your voyages in the next summer season to go kill the English with or whatever you wanted to do. So you could grow something or make something on your farm and take it to someone else who could make other things that you didn't have. Yeah, it's funny. Whenever I hear the word barter economy, I always get this picture in my head of a guy who tries to get an iPhone in exchange for a pig. Why? That's never happened. Anymore. No, I know, because we don't have a barter economy anymore. But that would be the modern day equivalent of like, or I think of like, if I were to go to the shop to buy a new pair of shoes, uh, they'd, instead of money, would you like to take this cake that I've baked for you? It's. I wonder how much a pig is worth. If you had a whole pig on your farm and you took it to like the slaughterhouse and stuff, how much money would you get? You mean in modern times or yeah, Viking right now. times? Um, Could a pig pay for an iPhone? Yeah, interesting. I, I, I might Google that later. We can Google, or indeed if, if one of our listeners work on farms and, and you off the top of your head, you know the, the price of, of a good pig, tweet us or email us and let us know, does a pig buy you an iPhone if we were to reintroduce the barter economy? Anyway, back to the farms of the Viking era, because they weren't just where you produced stuff in terms of food. It was also the place you lived for most people. From archaeological excavations, we know that the houses of this time were often long and rectangular, and therefore named longhouses. Imaginative. Yeah. These houses were often made of wood, sometimes stone or a mix of both and often with thatched roofs. Many of these Viking-era houses were constructed using a technique called stave construction. So that's when the wooden slats are driven into the ground to form a continuous wall, and then a buttress is placed on top of that, and then you make the thatched roof on top of that with a hole in it for the smoke uh, from the fires to escape. Mm. So sometimes the houses had a dugout sort of semi-cellar as well that was used for storage. In fact, if you go to certain parts of Norway, you can still see examples of this stave construction method. And nowadays, you especially see it. They've preserved some churches that are built with that. Yeah, I've been to a really good one in Kalpanga on the west coast of Norway. Yeah, it's on the west coast-ish, but it's at the end of a fjord, a really long fjord. Oh. Um, but yeah, very nice. I think it was from like 1100 or something. Mm -hmm. When you start looking inside these houses, I think this was really the birth of the now famous Scandinavian minimalist design yeah. because they didn't really have much to go inside their houses. Often these long houses were just one big room with a half in the middle and benches around it and several generations would live together all sharing the same space. So don't think the animals were in there as much as they were in the, the previous periods where uh. we talked about sleeping with cows, but... 
But still, it was it was definitely minimalist design. They didn't clutter their their houses. Maybe more from necessity than in modern day style sense. I mean, it's fair enough not having too much stuff inside because you're going to spend a lot of your time outdoors in the summer. That's where you would have done most of your work. But the winters are really long in Scandinavia, as we've mentioned a lot before. So I suppose they just didn't want to have much getting in the way of their cuddling up and keeping warm in the in the winter. Chris mentioned the hearth in the Viking houses, and this gives me reason to talk about one of my favourite subjects, as we all know by now, food. What tasty, tasty food went into their Viking bellies? Well, probably some of those tasty pigs that they're trying to sell for iPhones. Um, So I can imagine a a big barbecue pit where they're roasting a whole pig. Yeah, well, there were some spit roasting, but probably not in that kind of uh, asterisk and obelisk way we think of it. From that barley and rye that we talked about earlier that they grew, the Vikings made bread, but also a type of strong beer. And if you mix that beer with honey... That turned into a classic Viking drink, mead. And when they weren't gushing down beer and mead, they also drank milk, both from cows and goats. Maybe starting off that long-standing Swedish penchant for drinking milk. Yeah, because you do drink a lot of milk. So. I do drink a lot of milk. Whenever well, I was I'm... thinking about Sweden. Yeah, no, but... both Swedes yeah. and me personally. Whenever I'm abroad and... As an adult, I still drink like a glass of milk with my meal. I always feel like I get very odd looks from people that you're not meant to drink quite so much lactose. Hey-ho. But it's interesting to see how interested in honey the Vikings were. It was probably the only real sweetener they had because... Of course, sugar wouldn't become an everyday commodity in life until much, much, much later. No. So they had to have something to make it slightly more tasty. Yeah. No, they didn't have the imported sugar cane and homegrown sugar beets. So honey was really the prime sweetener for them in their food. And they also ate eggs and wild plants and berries. The meat they consumed, both from cattle, pig and sheep, Uh, was often salted and dried to be able to be preserved over the long winter. And of course, the same goes for fish or any wild game that they ate. Yeah, Swedes love preserving things with loads of disgusting methods. Yeah. Make it keep for forever in a basement. I think it's kind of making a virtue out of a necessity that in order to survive during the winter... We had to do this to our food. And then obviously you start liking things when they're sorted and dried and pickled and all of this. Yeah, it's not actually that bad. A lot of it is actually quite nice. The Vikings would have cooked all this food on that hearth in the centre of the house that we mentioned. And they'd put a cauldron on the fire and just cook things, everything in that directly. A bit like big soup bowls and stews and things like that. And as also mentioned, they did occasionally spit roast things on that fire. And they had the technique of cooking fish and meat by sort of putting it over a hole in the ground and then covering the, the hole with hot stones. So a bit like a very basic oven or... Like a barbecue pit type thing that you fill in. 
I think if you were invited to dinner with a Viking, though, you really shouldn't expect fine dining. It was probably pretty basic. Uh, Glassware and cutlery wasn't really a thing. Most likely they just used spoons carved out of a piece of wood and they used clay pots for storing the food. No sporks. (laughs) Do you think they invented the spork? Did the Vikings invent the spork? For Mm. those of you that don't know what a spork is, it's uh, like when you go camping, it's uh, a combination of a spoon and a fork. I don't think the Vikings invented the spork. One Viking must have taken a spoon and tried to turn it into some sort of stabby knife and ended up with a spork. I, I think we should move on because, you know, sporks or no spork, the diet they had seemed to have been fairly healthy and there's a lot in there that I'd quite happily eat today. And still do. Yeah. So um, when they've worked hard on these farms and they've had this lovely meal, the another big question is what do they do for fun? Mm. So this is a question that's always quite difficult to answer in history because there tends to be less evidence of that around and of the everyday person especially. Before we get much writing and records, there's not much that's going to survive. But archaeologists have found board game type things that were made out of wood and stone and sort of like old chess sets, I think. Mm. But the one thing they did get up to was lots of storytelling. Yeah, and this uh, storytelling, which then translated into both religion and poetry from the time, uh, which we'll talk more about in later episodes, were probably, I mean, think of it, no, no TV films, movies, you know, that that's what you do to uh, to entertain yourself and others. As we saw in the Mind the Gap episode, this was definitely the case for the nobles and the elites. Uh, remember the tale of the Icelander at Harald Hodrada's court telling all the sagas? So there was that form of entertainment. But unfortunately, like most people all throughout history, most of the time you're going to be doing work when you're Mm. awake and rather than having fun, because if you don't go to work, you're going to starve. So what would have they been doing? Yeah, well, there's obviously everything that comes with running a farm and staying alive and making sure you have something to trade for something else in your barter economy. One big industry was perhaps, not surprisingly, making clothes for these Vikings to wear, uh, both at home to keep the cold out during winter and, you know, get you ready for your raid abroad. Unfortunately, there aren't any completely preserved outfits dated from the Viking Age that have survived to today, but we do have thousands of fragments of different textiles which have survived in different burials. So these give archaeologists important information on what raw material was used, what weaving technique was used, and so on. There's also some descriptions in the Viking art, or you can find information in written texts, for example, in the Icelandic sagas. And adding all this together, we can make descriptions of the different types of garment that men and women would have worn. We know that they would have had shirts and cloaks, shoes and gloves, for example. And of course, as we mentioned way back in one of the earliest episodes, they even had trousers. Ah, the humble trouser. Mm. How important you are in history. And for Swedes surviving in the winter. Yeah. The sagas also mention high status and high value goods for 
the nobles and warriors like military equipment and clothing as well as more simple clothing and as coarse as you would expect from the sagas magical garments Ooh. so perhaps most importantly they give examples of the textiles and clothes have been given as gifts so we can use that to see how valuable they were mm. rather than what exactly they mm. were made of and what they looked like which is perhaps less important yeah. A lot of this really interesting information has come from a couple of articles by Eva Anderson Strand, and it's something quite a few academics are focusing on now, now that these textiles have survived. Yeah, and another even more extraordinary point is the fact that at this time we see the first evidence of silk being imported into Sweden. There's a great article about this called Silk Trade to Scandinavia in the Viking Age, and it's by Marianne Vedelor. And in Scandinavia, Vedelor has catalogued 23 archaeological sites with finds of silk dating from the 9th and 10th century. So in most cases, the silk is being found in graves, this includes silk threads and fabric versions used in embroidery. Uh, there are also several graves with finds of fibres that are assumed to be silk, but haven't been identified yet. So, as we mentioned, you can begin to look at the status of mm. the silk and these clothing by looking at the amount of it. So, most of the sites revealed only one or two fragments of silk, so it's definitely a rare thing, mm -hmm. and it is coming from a long way away. The largest concentration of graves is in that place that we're hearing more and more about, and we're here for almost the whole episode next week, Birka, in eastern Sweden. And another archaeologist, Agnes Geyer, has found 49 graves in Birka that contain silk. Wow, that is like, that is Viking era bling right there, that signals high status yeah and so for context the largest concentration of silk in a single grave was found over in norway in a place called Usseberg, where over a hundred fragments of silk from different fabrics were preserved in in total there are five sites in norway eight in sweden seven in denmark and a couple in finland so it isn't really that prominent because the vikings got everywhere but there's the silk was only found in these few places mm. It is one of the good examples of the luxury goods that are being traded around Europe at the time. And it was one that would have come on a massively long journey from the east to make its way to Sweden. Yeah. And, and like we said, it's a real status symbol. You know, imagine Mr. Viking walking around in silk trousers. Like, you know who's boss then. Yeah, I don't think they probably had enough to make a whole set of trousers out of it. It's probably like a little bracelet or something. Yeah. Although maybe they did have silk trousers, possibly. But weaving wasn't a skill just to make clothes. It was used to make something even more important, and that was sails yeah. for these great Viking longboats. And as a result, cloth for sails and tents were in great demand during the Viking Age because they needed to use these ships to go out and do everything. Yeah, I mean, the sails must have been considered just as valuable as the actual ships themselves, as without the sale, they would never be able to make profitable or fast journeys. Sales are mentioned as gifts and valuable items in the Icelandic sagas, and the only time a saga mentions a man weeping is after he lost his sail. This is in St. Olaf's saga. There is a bit where these two Vikings are having an argument about trade and goods, and one guy, Tuurur, 
essentially steals a good sail from the other guy, a Viking, Osbjorn. And then at a feast later on, Thorod brags about how Aspion cried when he lost his really nice sail. So Aspion hears this, just walks right up to Thorod in the middle of the dinner, cuts his head off. So they're pretty sensitive about their sails. Yeah, um, like A, don't steal my sail. B, don't brag about how I cried when you stole my sail. And C, you're losing your head. Yeah. Um, so you get a bit of a context about how much time and effort would need to be put into these sails because a larger longship that would have 30 pairs of oars on it, mm-hmm. so taking, yeah, 30-odd yeah. Um, people on board to sail, it would have required a sail that's around 120 square metres wow. in size, while for a smaller trading vessel, around 46 square metres would have been enough. So that's a lot of sail that was stolen from Aspion. And so I'd, I'd probably cry if someone... That's probably the equivalent of taking, you know, a couple of laptops, a yeah. couple of iPhones and Android phones and whatever. It's but a and lot of And also taking away your means of work. That's true, yeah. So it's like taking your car as well. Yeah, it's like stealing all your stuff and getting you sacked from your job. No wonder Aspion cried and then got really angry and chopped his head off. Yeah. Now, the raw material for these sails was presumably wool, and both clothes and sails were often made from wool from the Viking sheep. So things like cotton, which can't be naturally produced in Sweden, is still a bit of a fair way away in our timeline. Yeah, and in weaving it, they used drop spindles, were more common at least than using a spinning wheel, and then they weaved on upright looms. At least that was something they would be able to do inside during the winter. And Vikings are, of course, very well known for their use of metal, but they should also be well known for their skill in making all this metal work. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned in previous episodes, Sweden has the raw material now that's ready and waiting to be used for making iron. So it was a relatively easy production, easy in the sense that they had the access to the raw materials, but just like farming at the time, it was still very labor intensive, but it was worth it. Some people have also said that control over the big sources of iron in northern Uppland and northern Vesmaland and southern Dalarna was a really important prerequisite for power for the chieftains in the Viking Age as this helped them to control the means of production and trade the raw materials for other valuable goods. Some people are arguing against that, that you wouldn't necessarily have needed that in some areas of Sweden. But it's an idea out there for if this stuff is so valuable, presumably someone had some sort of general control over it. Yeah. And rightly so, because almost everything you think of needed to be made out of iron and other metals somehow, from the tools on the farm to the weapons used in fighting. So there was so much demand for it. It would make sense for someone to be involved Yeah, and the Vikings were really helped by the fact that they were so skilled in metal work. You know, when they went off on their raids uh, that we talked about in the beginning of the episode, they could rely on an arsenal of good weapons that smiths and metal workers back home had made for them. And they were also able to melt down all the great gold and silver they stole from the monasteries yeah. and then use that into turn it into more cool Viking goods. Yeah, that's a really important point. So when we think of Viking weapons, we might think of battle axes, which, yes, was a thing, but they also had swords and spears, and they were probably more common. So... 
Uh, swords made out of iron. They started out as being single-edged, but then they learned to make them double-edged, which uh, is more practical, but also more lethal. Yeah, more killy. Stabby, stabby. Can stab both ways. Swords were carried in scabbards, and the hilt uh, was often richly decorated in personal ways, so making it a bit of like your own sword. That's very cool. Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who has owned swords in my life, not because I'm a Viking, but because uh, I used to fence for many, many years growing up. So I've owned three or four odd swords, but in sport fencing, you're not allowed to decorate them. You're not even allowed to, like, carve your name on it. You write your name on the inside of the metal handle so that you know which one's yours. You put your initials on. But you can't do the outside? No. That's unfair. Well, it's you're meant to keep it to keep it clean. Mm, uh, you do. You tend to, or at least we tended to name our swords. So you you had a name for it. I named mine after a three that were named after the three musketeers, and then uh, I had one that was named after the donkey that uh, Don Quixote rides on. Donkey who? <laughs> donkey who? Don Quixote de la Mancha. It's a famous Spanish novel. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Maybe the Vikings named their swords like I do. This uh, is Mr. Stabby. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing's for certain, and that was that they were highly priced goods and would often be inherited from one generation to the next. Yeah, that makes sense because they would have spent a lot of time on them. Mm. And away from the swords, the Vikings had two main types of spears. One was lighter and used for throwing and hurling like Monday javelins. Perhaps that's why the Scandinavian countries tend to win Olympic medals in javelin Yeah, I, I won. That was like, when I researched the metalwork and the and the swords, and this came up about the javelins. I thought maybe we have been working since the Viking Age, perfecting our javelin throwing. Perfect for social distancing. If you get too close, you get hit. Excellent social distancing sports. Maybe. Also fencing. Yeah. See, we need to need to uh, to think creatively about this. But they had a heavier kind of spear, which was much more like a real spear rather than a javelin. And this was used for close combat and stabbing and mm. all that kind of business. And I'm sure we'll have a combat-focused section yeah. uh, at some point, but this is getting on uh, quite sure. a bit. So we'll come back to that yeah. another time, I'm sure. For now, we should round off and look forward to what we're going to talk about next time. Yeah, so this week we've focused a lot on the rural life of the Vikings to an extent in this sort of like micro level and what they got up to at home in these rural areas and what they ate and what their houses looked like. Yeah, we've also looked at some of the more dramatic Viking raids that started off our period and there is more... Swedish drama to follow though and there's more drama going eastwards uh, because that's where most of the Swedish Vikings went. Yeah so next time we're going to step it up a level I guess if you could call it that and start Mm -hmm. looking at Viking towns and particularly this really famous site of Birka Mm -hmm. and we're going to look at this through the archaeology but also some of the really really fascinating Christian expeditions to Sweden and their accounts, what they wrote down almost immediately afterwards about what they saw when they yeah. went to these places in Sweden. It's so exciting, this episode next time. Yeah. I want to record it immediately after this we one. We are going to meet a, 
person, a character in Swedish history that uh, I think is going to be one of our first like really strong personalities in in history. And the whole episode is pretty much about him, so we'll look forward to that. Yeah, and we get the first ever date for events on Swedish soil, so now we can start to go on this day hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah, so massively looking forward to that. Yeah, until then, follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you think of when we do special episodes, like the one we just did about the dog tags. Let us know if you like that, if you don't like it. Yeah, and um, stay in contact with Facebook, Twitter, our email address, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Keep listening and we'll see you next time. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Hey, doll.